Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 3 the Wolf House. A note before we go forward. I refer to the subject of this episode as the Wolf House. My wife slash producer has pointed out to me that many of the online sources call it the Wolf Manor. It's the same place. The locals who told me stories about it usually refer to it as the Wolf House, and so that's what I've gone with. Please be aware of that, though, in case you find it under the name Wolf Manor anywhere else. Also. Don't get this one confused with a number of different historic houses across the U.S. called the Wolf House. This is the one in Clovis, California that uh, was torn down in 2014. For tonight's episode, I would like to tell you about something that had, until six years ago, been a local landmark in Fresno County, California, where I live. It was something of a famous local haunted house. Up until it was demolished in 2014, the subject of this episode was known alternately as the Wolf House, Andalbury Estate, or the Clovis Sanitarium. This large, imposing house sat on Clovis Avenue in the city of Clovis, near Fresno. Built in the first half of the 20th century, the house is said to have served as a private home for two different owners, an insane asylum and even a convalescent hospital before finally closing. After the hospital closed, the house was bought by Todd Wolf, who decided to use the creepy-looking old building as a Halloween haunted house attraction. He created a new name and implied fictional history for the house, and it became the Andalbury Estate, allegedly founded in 1871. But local lore, and Wolf's own stories, hold that he got more than he bargained for. Rather than a superficially spooky house that could simply be used as a Halloween attraction, Wolf accidentally purchased a very real haunted house. Local legend tells that, while it was used as a sanitarium, it housed over 100 people at a time, all of them living in squalor and neglect, and that there were thousands of deaths at the house. Naturally, there were rumors that the doctors working in the sanitarium would use the patients as experimental subjects, causing them further misery. It was also claimed that when it was used as a convalescent hospital, Everyone knew that the patients were regularly neglected and mistreated. Sadly, this is an unfortunately plausible claim. In talking to locals who grew up in the Fresno area, I've learned that this place was rumored to be haunted even before it was abandoned. And, of course, after it was abandoned, stories began to spread about mysterious lights being seen in the windows, unexplained screams being heard, and many people getting general creepy feelings when passing by. One of my co-workers told me that, Back in the 90s, when he was a kid, his father would tell him ghost stories about the house every time they drove past it, though my colleague could not remember any of the specifics when I asked him, and he suspected that his father was making a lot of the stories up on the spot. After the house was bought by Wolf, more stories started to circulate. People who stayed in the house overnight on Wolf's invitation, usually members of various ghost hunting groups, though some nationally viewed television shows also filmed there, 
reported experiencing the normal litany of haunted house occurrences, like hearing loud banging noises through the night and the sounds of footsteps and conversations in empty rooms, as well as the feeling of drafts of cold air moving through the house and having clothing tugged on by unseen forces. Some who stayed in the house reported that the doorknobs could be heard turning on doors which no longer had knobs, and that doors opened by themselves. It is claimed that objects moved of their own accord, and would often be found somewhere other than where their owner had left them. People looking into the basement windows reported seeing moving lights even when the house was empty. Also, the basement was always cold, even in Fresno County's very hot summers. Some visitors reported happier sounds, such as people engaged in friendly conversation and children playing. Todd Wolf reported hearing the scraping sound of people moving slowly on unoccupied floors, and the sounds of feet running through the kitchen. Tape recorders used by various ghost hunters who came to this house picked up ghostly voices that appeared to speak in reaction to things said by the living, who, of course, only heard the voices on the recordings after the fact. Those who know their current ghost lore will recognize this as electronic voice phenomenon, or EVP. The idea that spirits can be heard on recordings even when those who were present when the recordings are made did not hear them. Many of Wolf's guests report feelings of dread, emotional, and in one case even physical, pressure, and general unease. Some visitors even reported bringing a spectral guest home with them. This hitchhiker is said to be a male presence that manifests as the smell of cigar smoke and is accompanied by low, ghostly voices and otherworldly laughter. To be rid of him, people had to return to the house, although how they convinced him to return to his previous haunt is uh, never really made clear. There are also reports of vague harassment of visitors, and also of workers when it was an active facility. The harassment seems to primarily have involved being pushed or otherwise abused by unseen forces. Local legend holds that after the building was finally abandoned, 911 calls would come from the house, despite the phone lines having long since been removed. Three particular rooms are said to be the most haunted. In one, called Mary's Room, there was a chair that always occupied a particular spot in the room. If the chair was moved, it would return to its original location. Another room, the Red Room, was said to be the site of numerous ghostly sounds, all of them related to a busy hospital ward. Lastly, George's room was said to be special, but none of the websites that I found tell you anything specific about it, other than that it was a room used by a grumpy old nurse named George. Back when the house was still standing, it was easily visible to the public, standing as it did on a very busy road. However, it was private property, it was fenced off, and Todd Wolf did not allow everyone to access it. While the house is now gone, if the stories that I've heard from friends and co-workers are any indication, it is now firmly ensconced in the folklore of the Fresno area. Commentary The rough draft of what would eventually become the Ghostthropology podcast was a blog that I kept, and still occasionally update, named Sluggo's House of Spookiness which, by the way, would have been the name of this podcast if my good lady wife, who was also my producer, had not persuaded me otherwise. On one of the blog posts, a commenter once thanked me for my investigation into a story. While I appreciate the thanks, it is, after all, fun, but not easy to perform the background research for the blog entries in these podcast episodes, I have to say that I am not an investigator, at least not in the sense that the commenter seemed to intend. The term investigator implies that the person has done more than superficial internet searches, 
listening to locals tell stories, and reading mass market books. Somebody who is an investigator, rather than simply an enthusiast or a curious member of the public, tries to dig further and sort out fact from fiction using the tools at their disposal. It is a time-consuming and often difficult task, and requires a lot of background research as well as field work. In my day job, when I do archaeological research, I act as an investigator. In fact, I have served as what is termed the principal investigator on several projects. I spend a good deal of time reading books on the region, reading through past researchers' field notes, looking over historic maps, often consulting aerial photographs, reading up on relevant environmental information, and so on before I go to the field. In the field, I am very careful with my note-taking. I am cautious to capture information relevant to my investigations, and every measurement taken with every tool addresses questions relevant to the nature of the site or region. None of my work happens in a vacuum, but is instead informed by years of serious archaeological study and direct practical experience, as well as the background research I have done. By contrast, when I do my research for this podcast, I do do background research and collect information, certainly. However, I do not do so with the diligence of a real investigator. In the case of the Wolf House, I have not gone down to the Fresno County Assessor's Office to look up the ownership history of this parcel of land. Nor have I gone to the local historical society for information on the history of the hospitals in Clovis. Doing this sort of background research is a long, often tough, and typically tedious process. I didn't do it for this episode because I'm interested in the stories, not in pursuing clear evidence of the supernatural. I'm here because I want to understand why we tell and enjoy these ghost stories. As I say in the intro to each episode, I'm interested in the folklore, and the documented history of this particular house is less relevant to the stories as folklore than it would be to an actual investigation of strange doings at the house. However, if you're going to call yourself an investigator and claim some sort of objective backing for your claims, then you have a responsibility to do this sort of background research, and then you have to determine whether or not there even is anything to investigate. Are any of the tales true? And then determine how to investigate. All of that being said, I do notice patterns when I do my research into the various haunted house stories that I've collected over the years. And I do feel that these things have a bearing on how the folklore of a location is generated and transmitted. One thing that became very clear as I began to do internet research on this house is that there is very little about it online that was not directly influenced by the owner, Todd Wolf. As I read what accounts I could find, I have to admit that I began to develop a very real admiration for Mr. Wolf. He seemed to be smart, a good showman, and likely a clever businessman. Sounds like he'd be both interesting and fun to be around. However, when you start learning about his operation, it does make me question the readily available information about this house and just how accurate some of it may be. According to most reports, Wolf worked with various ghost hunter groups in order to try to piece together the history of the house. The history that has been developed by these folks indicates that the house was built in the early 1900s, though some sources say the 1920s, by an Italian immigrant who was in a competition with his brothers regarding who could build the most impressive house. It was later sold to a family who likewise used it as their residence. In the 1930s, it was sold again and developed into a sanitarium, a function it served up until the 1960s. The sanitarium is said to have been a horrific place, with thousands of deaths over its functioning years. In the mid-1960s, it became a convalescent hospital, which was rife with troubles from neglect to the mistreatment of patients. It was abandoned in the early 1990s and sat empty for a period, before it was bought by Todd Wolf in the mid-1990s. Wolf turned it into a popular haunted house attraction each October, called Scream If You Can, but it was never rehabilitated into a more substantial business. 
Some of the reports I read indicated that the hospital wing of the building was demolished in 2007, but that doesn't stop the stories from incorporating it. In the early 2010s, after the city of Clovis labeled the abandoned house a nuisance and a danger, and also found a significant number of building code violations, an effort was made to sell it, though a condition of the sale was that it had to be moved off of the property on which it sat, which would have made the purchase prohibitively expensive. Finally, with no further development on the horizon and no buyers ready to take it, it was demolished. I can confirm that the post-2010 history of the house, as presented above, is accurate. I've learned that through doing research in the local newspapers. For all that I know, the earlier history could likewise also be true. The problem is that I had to piece the earlier portions of the history together from numerous bits of local folklore and web sources over the space of many years. And the sources that I found were built of elements put together by people who were looking for a reason to think that the house was haunted. As a result, it is likely that the people cobbling together the various parts selected the more sensationalist information that they received without necessarily scrutinizing it for accuracy. I rarely saw records from the county, county histories, or old articles from the local newspapers cited as sources, though these are available through the county offices and the historic collections at the Fresno County Library and Fresno State University Library, all resources that I use routinely when I have to do historical research for my job. In my experience, this is pretty common in ghost enthusiast circles. Distorted death figures, local folklore, and urban legend are often accepted without the investigators doing basic but time-consuming research at the local libraries and government offices, which, of course, have documents that could confirm or discredit many of the claims made about a property. The ghost hunters understandably want to find ghosts, and, in my experience, tend to be reluctant to do any substantial vetting of the information that they gather. Only the easiest to dismiss tends to get dropped, and even widely disproven information is often propagated. This is something that I have seen time and time again in performing research for allegedly haunted houses. While I don't know of any specifically false or out-of-context information that has been given for this house, the nature of the claims that are available are strikingly similar to those that can be proven false at other haunted houses across the world. And, of course, the former owner had reasons for wanting the property to be viewed as genuinely haunted. Todd Wolf used this location as a haunted house attraction, offered tours for a fee, and at one point made public his intentions to develop the property into a haunted hotel to lure in paranormal tourism to Clovis. In the end, it's possible that the history of the property available online is accurate, at least in the broad strokes, and I will go so far as to say that the general outline of the story is consistent with local history. But because it was put together by individuals with a definite interest in finding the place to be as sensationalistic and spooky as possible, the validity is very much in doubt. That the insane asylum angle gets played up more than the time that the house was used as a residence or as a haunted house business is no surprise. Nor is it a surprise that Mr. Wolf apparently put his gifts as a showman to work in allowing various ghost hunter groups to take nighttime tours of the property. One account, in particular, from around 2010, was written by a member of a local paranormal enthusiast group that was invited to the house by Wolf. The account described the evening in detail, but unfortunately that group's website appears to have folded. Entering the URL into the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine pulls up the advertisements from the website, but not the original content. However, in researching the house for my Sluggo's House of Spookiness blog, I took my own notes regarding the entry, which provides some interesting and useful information. According to that account, Mr. Wolf had an assistant on hand to stay with the group throughout their visit, and he also had invited members of the local news media to come and interview the intrepid ghost hunters. 
The author of the entry described the placement of various props, including fake tombstones and the like, around the property, many of which I have to say look pretty good based on the photos that he included, or so my notes indicate anyway. However, this area was never an actual cemetery. Other haunted house-style props were prominent in some locations, but absent in others. The group was led on a tour of the house, with descriptions given of the various phenomena said to occur throughout, and at the end, they were led to a room with a number of documents pertaining to the history of the building, and they were invited to examine those documents. The author of the account seemed ready to take everything at face value, but in reading through what he wrote, a few things stuck out to me that I think are noteworthy signs of Mr. Wolf's instincts as an entertainer. Number one, the assistant. That Mr. Wolf provided an assistant to stay with the group is, in of itself, pretty normal for liability reasons of nothing else. However, the author of the essay specifically said that the assistant was there in case anyone was injured or had an emergency. Now, that may mean little, as it is probably an accurate description of some of the man's duties, but B-movie fans may remember this sort of ploy from 50s schlock horror, films like The Screaming Skull, for example. Starting the evening off with a creepy foreboding statement to make everything sound ominous and scary is a good way to set the psychology of the tour group. The term for this sort of thing is ballyhoo. It's cool, it's fun, and it sets the scene very effectively. Number two, the news media. In this case, Wolf had arranged for the ghost hunters to meet and be interviewed by members of the press. The result, as the writer of the piece notes, is that everyone felt very special. Of course, underlying that is the fact that the news media was there making everyone feel special because of the alleged presence of ghosts, which puts additional pressure on the people taking the tour to find said ghosts. It gets publicity for the house, and it gives the people intending to investigate a push to reach a particular conclusion. On other occasions, investigators were actually there as part of specific television shows, such as the cable show Ghost Hunters, and therefore had their own reasons for acting to the cameras. Regardless, this creates a dynamic where there is a greater expectation that something should happen. Number 3. Placement of Props and Creepy Atmosphere According to the account, Halloween haunted house props were set up in some rooms and notably absent in others, preventing anyone from getting used to them. The basic effect of this is likely to be that the environment remains a little disorienting and one isn't sure what to make of the locations that have them versus those that don't. Which room is special? Number 4. Verification of the Real At the end of the tour, Mr. Wolf allowed members of the group to go into a room where records pertaining to the house were kept. While these records had little to do with the house's alleged hauntings, they did allow members of the group to get a feeling for the antiquity of the house, and this lent a ring of truth to the stories related to the house, even if the documents had little or nothing to do with those stories. While the author of the piece I'm describing was certainly inclined to see ghosts from the get-go, he began to interpret everything as ghosts. Drafts, not uncommon in old houses, even with windows and doors shut, were thought to be not only ghosts, but specifically the ghost of a child. All strange sounds, even those that one would expect to find in any old house, were interpreted as supernatural, and every light-reflecting mode of dust, likely the actual cause of the popular orbs in current ghost hunter photography, were interpreted as spirit photos. In the end, it's just more publicity for a haunted business. Oh, and regarding the basement being cold even on the hottest summer days, this is not at all weird or inexplicable. And I've noticed that the people who comment on it are generally from places outside of the San Joaquin Valley. As someone who, for professional reasons, has spent a lot of time in holes in the ground, I can say with some authority that the subsurface of the San Joaquin Valley is typically cooler than the surface during the summers. In fact, there's a popular Fresno attraction, the Underground Gardens, which was constructed for this very reason. The ground insulates, and having a cool basement, even in our hot summers, is actually pretty normal. 
Mr. Wolf, to his credit, was always very open about his business interests in the house, and never seemed inclined to hide his financial interests while the mythology was being spread. He may not have admitted to the showmanship, but he didn't appear to be trying to hide or distract from it either. This allows those of us who bother to look past the hype to see that there's something more mundane at work. There is business to be done here, and ghosts, real or not, can be good business. Hell, the description of the most haunted rooms, George's room, Mary's room, and the Red Room, even appear to be geared towards renting these out had Wolf's plan of getting into the haunted hotel business ever taken off. Was there something truly spooky happening here? Hmm, I don't know. Certainly, some of the stories predate the use of this place as a Halloween attraction. But there is reason to be spectacle of the reports coming out of this place. Was this a great bit of local lore that deserved attention from ghost story collectors and enthusiasts? Oh, yeah, it definitely was. It really was a fantastic haunted house, not just in the stories, but in its appearance. And, frankly, I'm more than a little sad to see it gone. I consider it a shame that Todd Wolf never developed the haunted hotel. I, for one, would have booked a room. Thank you for joining me. If you have heard a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail.com. Also, please visit the Ghostthropology blog for transcripts, show notes, and more information at kmmamedia.com. That's kmmamedia.com. Until next time, have a wonderfully spooky night. Spooky!